This is Fintech Unplugged with Suresh Bajani and me, Robert Courtney. Can you all shout very loudly and give me a joke? Thank you. Well, here we are for the first Fintech Unplugged live, Suresh. What do you think? We're here with a live audience. And whose event is this? Uh, I don't know. Vent. Vend, vendor, uh, vendor com? Can you spell it? Vendor.com? You, you communicate oh, with vendors. Machine. Vending machine. You communicate with vendors. That must be the origin of I it. I guess, I guess. We could ask someone. There's this bloke here. Oh, who are you anyway? Shall I explain? I'm Paul Rogers. I'm the chairman of Vendor.com, and Vendor.com is a membership organization that brings together the key players in the payments industry. So, what better place to have this FinTech Unplugged session? Thank you very much for inviting us along, Paul. And uh, let's, let's dive straight into the bin of confusion. Okay, I've got one here. Oh, I think this is for you, Robert. Where in the EU would be the best place to set up a license post-Brexit? To be honest, I think there are a, a lot of options for, for companies that want to do this. Um, and I think if you want English speaking, obviously somewhere like Ireland is, is very convenient and location-wise works. There are a lot of competing countries that would like to win this business. We've seen a lot of activity in places like Latvia and Lithuania, where the regulators are positively promoting you to go over there and get their licenses. Uh, we've seen pushes by places like Malta and Cyprus. I have to say, I haven't, I haven't seen a lot of stuff from France and Germany and Spain. With your lawyer hat on, where are people really doing it? Doing it? Yeah, okay, not, not what you normally do on the weekend. But what I'm talking about is where, yeah, that's what you call it. Look, I don't want to talk about your tackle. <laughs> I want to ask you a serious question yeah. about where are the companies actually looking and that, well, looking is the wrong term, actually yeah. doing it. Well, I, I think, jokes aside, places like Germany where you've got a very good regulator actually does work. I mean, really? If, if, you, if you want to be seen as a, a good player, a big player in, a, in the world market, Germany is still one of the top banking areas in the world to have your office set up. That's why a lot of the banks are going over there. I'm going to throw one in here right out of the field. How about Belfast? Maybe I'm a bit prejudiced, a bit biased there, given that that's where I was born. But I think we're going to see some very interesting stuff going on in Northern Ireland. And if you do want that English-speaking side of things, and you do want that proximity to Dublin, go in Ireland and... Uh, but keep half an eye on what might happen in Belfast. Oh, do we do we think Belfast are going to be part of a full integrated Ireland? Is that is that is that what you're saying? They're going to pull away from the UK. So post Brexit, you've got a separate new European entity called Northern Ireland. What a great opportunity to put a special economic position in place for the UK. It's the ideal place to have it. Interesting. So if you were a betting man, would you put Dublin on there? I would definitely put Dublin on there. So I'm, I'm, I've got British citizenship and I've got Irish citizenship. Uh, and I really think, uh, yep, Dublin's a good place, particularly for British-based companies today who are wanting to build a bridgehead into the rest of the world. Not necessarily in their business with continental Europe, but bridging out into the rest of the world. Fantastic opportunity. And the bars and pubs have got no influence on that decision? Only if they're selling whiskey. So, Paul, why don't you put your hand in the bin and yeah, see what you Yeah, let's see what out. we can uh, pull out of this. Right, this is a good question, and it picks up on some of the things that we were looking at earlier. What is next after NFC for pre prepaid cards? 
I think NFC has been a real game changer in uh, in in the way that people use their cards. Um, TFL was a real game changer because it, it changed people's behavior. Um, it got them using their card, and it was quite funny because a lot of prepaid cards didn't do NFC because they didn't want to encourage uh, small value transactions because they basically said we make a loss on that. And it's true when it when it comes to value. But what they realized is by having their card NFC enabled, it made their card top of value, top, top of Front wallet. Of wallet. Yeah, exactly. Yeah. So they were using it more frequently. And as a byproduct, they would use their product more frequently than others. So it, it was definitely a game changer. The one thing that I will say that we're going to see more in prepaid is that uh, people like using prepaid for e-com transactions because they feel like it's sometimes safer than using it for your debit card or credit card. And it's the perception of it. Uh, but people hate really secure. They really do. Yeah. And one of the things that we're seeing more and more people interested in is is kind of chipping pin equivalents for e-com transactions. Okay. And we're getting more and more clients asking about dynamic CVV, saying we don't want to have this, this redirect page that has a password and yeah. all of that. Can't I just generate a single CVV in my, in my app or an SMS and I can do the transaction and the company's happy because it will say, was that really you? And you say, no, it wasn't me, Gav, honest. But it's like, well, no, you've actually, we've sent you a PIN or, or a CVV and you've actually done that transaction. So it's actually ticking all the box. It doesn't do the liability shift, but it makes it very difficult for you to say it isn't, it wasn't you. And what, what about this whole move and we've seen uh, PCI DSS compliance now on uh, PIN on glass, this, this whole thing of where you can actually type your PIN in so you could do... Uh, e-com transaction but actually use your pin because you've got your phone uh, if I can come in on that one I think it's a, a fascinating area and I think uh, there's a lot of column inches uh, there's a lot of investment going down that that line in terms of what it really means I think the the game's wide open I think the mature market model for a pin on glass is actually pin entry on the consumer device because that then takes PCI right out of the equation. And it goes back to some of the things that we've been talking about earlier in our session today about the move towards low capex expenditure by the merchant. So they can introduce something really straightforwardly and the consumer is putting a PIN number in on their own device and authenticating themselves in their own device. I think that's the way forward. Brilliant. I've got I've got a question, Robert. So you dived in again. And you know what? It's actually signed by everybody in the audience, right? <laughs> so and, and, and there's there's at least one person. In the it's audience. signed by everybody in the audience, okay? Because right? they all want to know this question. Okay. Where does Robert buy his shirts? <laughs> you think I buy them? <laughs> I, I'm brand ambassador for a, a company called Blackwell. Uh, B-L-A-Q-U-A. And I never know if you're being serious from. or not. Are you being serious? <laughs> I or? am being serious. Have you bought shares they in that make, company? They, they make my shirt. I've actually had a new material made, especially with the logo of Morwand, completely wrecked uh, our marketing team, uh, nearly killed me, uh, into the shape of flowers onto a navy purple background. Can't compete though, can he? <laughs> really can't. Oh. I, well, I, I, oh, well, let's let the audience, let's let the audience vote. <laughs> Suresh? Yeah. <laughs> I think Suresh gets the vote there. I, I just want to say, Robert, that if you're going to make this a requirement for people that join your company, yes. you may not attract the best people joining your company. Best dressed people, though. <laughs> it, it, it will look a very best dressed. Let me, let me dive in and do another one here. Um, someone with very bad writing. How can the prepaid industry engage with 
and better serve new fintechs. Seems to flip back to one of the earlier speakers when we had uh, Paul Twelve Lab on stage with uh, the new Open Payment Cloud uh, product. In reality, people don't know we exist. We ha we have this movement. We're all thinking, hey, you know, we do prepay really great, and every now and again, these fintechs use us. They don't know we exist. We definitely need to raise our profile. Yeah. Uh, and, and the one thing I'll also say is that one of the things that we will hold on to dearly, which is we're prepaid and this is the way we've always done it, is holding us back. We actually need to be more forward thinking. We need to be more embracing and we need to sometimes lose the terms that are holding us back. So we actually need to raise our profile and up our game. Uh, we almost need to rebrand as an industry. Absolutely agree with that. Uh, the prepaid world has been in its own lovely and very successful little bubble for the, the last little while, using its own language and uh, actually being really warm and cozy and it's felt really, really great. But actually, certainly um, what we're seeing is prepaid world could actually be the sandbox for fintech. And that's the way to rebrand it is and don't call it prepaid. It's just that easy to go to market model that helps you sidestep, if only in the early stages of the introduction of new technology, all of the barriers that are currently in place for most of the fintechs. If you can bypass those barriers, that's going to get the fintechs on board. So what would you call it? If you had to choose a new name, what would you call it? Oh. I'm coming to you next, Robert. Right. I'm already there. Oh, well then go to Robert, because I'd I call it the Open Payments Cloud. <laughs> <laughs> um, that rings a bell. I know, funny that. Come on, put your hand in. Not there, Suresh. Come on. Okay, I have one for yeah. both of you. Did you buy any Bitcoins, firstly? Simple yes, no? No, no. but I was given some. You were given some? Yeah. But you know, when you do that stuff on the dark web, you're not supposed to tell people. Okay. It's one of my big regrets. Um, and I don't regret much, but four years ago, I was chairing the Bitfin conference in Dublin. A few weeks later, I spoke at the Crypto Valley Summit in the Isle of Man, and Bitcoin was at $13.5 per Bitcoin. And yeah, I could easily have found £1,000, maybe even £5,000, in which case... I certainly wouldn't have been here. So was I right or was I wrong in not buying those Bitcoin? Who knows? Right. It's a gamble. I mean, yeah, concentrate on uh, delivering the shovels, not the, uh, not the Bitcoins. So on the same topic, how will cryptos impact traditional fintech companies? I think there's a, a, a great impact on traditional fintech. And, 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 and what, what do you mean by traditional fintech? Do you mean the, 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 the payment processing engines out there that will not be needed in a, in, a, in a Bitcoin blockchain route, for example, because if you're going across a distributed ledger, you're not going to use the traditional payment rails. But equally, PSD2 has done exactly the same. It's disintermediated the schemes of the payment rails because it said you can go direct to bank transfer. So I think there's quite a lot out there that is pushing away from the traditional fintech space at the moment. Uh, and I think crypto is just one of the, the many things that is is moving the industry to a better, more efficient uh, and less frictionful world. I think one of the real opportunities is whether we're going to see some of the central banks 
come in and decide they're going to crypto their conventional currency. And that's what will really put some sort of competition up there against the more open cryptocurrencies that, that are around. So uh, an ICO from the Bank of England, an ICO from Banque de France, that would be an interesting... It can't actually be an ICO just from a legal perspective because any yeah. uh, fiat-based cryptocurrency is actually electronic money as defined mm. in the Electronic Money Directive, surprisingly enough, because it's, it's basically... What's an ICO? What is an ICO? Yeah, because an you know, coin offering? because we can't token offering? we can't keep doing what we do. You remember what we said that we can't use abbreviations to make us feel important. Yeah, exactly. Uh, <laughs> sorry, I was the new boy. I didn't know that rule. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. What's an ICO? It's a means of uh, delivering a new type of crypto coin into the marketplace, typically used to raise funds in a group funding type method. Like a Ponzi, like a nice Ponzi. (laughs) Yeah, yeah, like like an iced Ponzi cake. Um, Nice. There there have been some really good innovations coming through and don't forget the original ICOs were Bitcoin, were Ether, uh, were Ripple, and they've continued to flourish. Uh, I think there has been some other players coming in that are raising it for the wrong purposes. Uh, but I think in the long term, I think we're going to find some really good changes to the way in which structures take place. If you look in Gibraltar, for example, where they've got the uh, first block exchange instead of stock exchange, which will be basically regulating uh, and allowing people to register their cryptocurrencies. And I think that's a really good way forward. Um, we don't want to go back to the old school Victorian shares and uh, debentures and that style of running things. We want to move forward with tokens and with coins, but uh, we need to do it in some form of regulated way so people don't get ripped off. It's not the penny share, it's not the boiler house situation where they're pumping and dumping. So I think going forward, I think there is a a real great space for this in the marketplace. Good. Let's check in with Jeff to see what the person on the street really thinks. The man on the street. It could be a woman. Hi, my name's Duke. I own a bridging loan company. So you've bought and you've sold crypto. Have you ever actually used it to buy anything? No. Would you? you, If I could, why not? I think the banks will incorporate and bring that into their model. But when they realize, hold on a minute, there is something in this, then this is what the banks are gonna do. They're gonna want to get involved. So as somebody that appreciates crypto, if if I were as a client of yours and I, I wanted to pay you in Bitcoin, what would you say? That's a very good question. Um, well, at this stage in time, I mean, if as long as I'm, you know, if I can accept the payment and it, and I get paid, absolutely, why not? But it'll probably have to only be Bitcoin, because there's many other cryptos which I would definitely not accept. Uh, I'm Mr. Bucks. I'm the security guard here. Are you, yeah, what yeah. What do you yeah. know about Bitcoin? What's um... I mean, I know it's been banned from kind so many countries and. It doesn't make sense, you know, this uh, because you can't handle it's not it's not physical <laughs> basically. <laughs> you're touching there and there, you're making payments, you know, it's like um, it's like a bit like uh, virtual money, you know. But you can't see you can't handle it. you can see it, but it's like uh, it's like in the air, isn't it? <laughs> Some people say it's a bit dodgy, you know. It could come about a time like because we are into internet you know and all that you it will be possible to use this bitcoin 
as the money source instead of having the cash. So do you, can you foresee a time when you might be paid in Bitcoin? Yes, I could see it uh, well, in the near future, yes, yeah. yes very soon. <laughs> Uh, can I ask your name, sir? Of course. My name is Raj. Okay. Do you, do you work here in London? Yeah, yes, I do. I own a business with my cousin. Uh, we uh, have a computer repair store. Are you familiar with cryptocurrencies? I have an understanding of cryptocurrencies, okay. but uh, in terms of I don't really, I have never bought it, but I know about it, yes. Do you know anybody that's uh, bought yes. and sold Actually, them? Actually, I can tell you that um, my fam- one of my family members, he's a ex um, trader mm-hmm. and he's decided to do is uh, is trying is in the process of uh, launching his own cryptocurrency yeah really for what what purpose to make money <laughs> <laughs> i can only say that much you know. oh is he doing an ico uh, an initial coin offering I, I yes absolutely yes yes and will you be investing when i see that there's money uh, if there's money being made then absolutely why not how do you know that you can trust his his Bitcoin or his, well, his cryptocurrency? I can trust him. He's my cousin. He <laughs> can't go very far, can he? <laughs> I'll go knocking on his door. <laughs> the man on the street. It could be a woman. Paul, are you going to grab one? Yeah, let's see what. By the way, I'm not bitter about not buying Bitcoin. Ah! <laughs> How will the regulatory technical standards for secure customer authentication imp- impact prepaid? especially anonymous cards. Robert, your favourite, because all your cards are anonymous. Shh. It's basically putting another level of authentication to try and protect customers when they're doing online payments, for example. And it's not a one-size-fits-all. And by putting secure customer authentication requirements on some payment methods, which are secure in themselves, uh, is actually putting an unnecessary burden and additional cost into the industry that is not needed. And uh, that, that is the real concern we have. It, it is fit for purpose in many cases, and most products will easily fit within new methods of doing authentication. That's fine. But there are some that it is a bridge too far, and it, and it will only just add cost and not add any value to the customer. I've got a question where I may be in breach of GDPR because I'm going to disclose the name. In breach of what? General Data Protection Regulation. Is that what it is? Yeah, sorry. I thought it was kind of, you know, when, when countries grow in... Oh, that's GD... Something else, that's something GDP. Else. There's no oh. R in that. Gross domestic should have, product. I should have paid more attention to geography. Um, geography? <laughs> <laughs> the cost of innovation is the impending revenue generation. And who asked that question? That's from Matteo. No way. And he's even signed it, so he can't sue us for disclosing his name. Oh, that's good, because that is giving... Giving us his permission to use his name. Is the cost of innovation impending revenue generation? It's really interesting. There's, I, I sit on the UK Payment Systems Regulators Advisory Panel and um, a lot of the focus is innovation, 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 as if blindly innovation is the only way forward. I like the idea of innovation, but it can't come at any price. It can't just dive into the market expecting everything to change instantly in exactly the same way as short-term regulatory deadlines really increase the cost of compliance. We need to realize what the capacity for the real market, the marketplace, banks and retailers and merchants, what that capacity is for change. A bit like I was talking about in our session this morning, we were talking about the introduction of chip and pin. Great innovation, it's going to be an advantage for everybody. But coming when it did in the early stages of 2003 and 2004, most of the merchant community just wasn't interested in it at all. So it was great innovation, but happening at the wrong time. And it took another 
four to five years before it really got adopted. So just innovating across a really broad base without any real thought to what the actual market problem is, is just cost and it will impede rent revenue generation. So I think we need to be controlled, we need to be measured in what's going on. Exactly the same with the compliance burden that we see in the industry as well today. I think the other thing here is, uh, and it's, it's a debate, I think I've, we've had a discussion of this before, I think there is innovation, there's stagnation and there's regression. All of those three can be good in certain circumstances. If you look at a metro bank, they've gone for regression, they've gone back to branch and people like it. But they put some innovation alongside that in changing the hours and changing the days on which they open. So you, I think there is a, a, a mixture and I think all those three, whether you stay where you are today, whether you look at innovation for the future or whether you look back at what's worked in the past and give people what they actually want because they're used to it, all those three things can work. Uh, and I think there are examples of all three in the marketplace at any time. Actually, Suresh, you're asking most of these questions. What's your view on that one? Um, I think the one thing that we forget is that we actually work in a very specific sector that is very innovative in its, in its outset. And, and I don't know if you remember, but some of the earlier examples where I was showing the likes of Uber doing salary cards, you know, it, it was the most basic solution that we can offer in our industry. But it's groundbreaking when you cross it into, an, into another sector. So I think the danger we have is that we're always trying to be innovative well, we don't actually need to be. We almost have them at hello just by having the ability to solve problems that the traditional incumbents just can't do. But it's almost like to stay relevant, we are innovating for the sake of innovation. That's a packet of Monster Munch, by the way. That's, uh, we always need those with us. <laughs> now, who asked this question? Why do you think David Hasselhoff's singing career didn't take off in the US? Well, that's a bit of a left-field one for fintech, but Suresh, I think that's one for you. Well, we were talking about the Germans, right? Yes. And according to popular tradition, he was responsible for bringing down the Berlin Wall. Of course. Ooh. With his car. With his song. <laughs> yes. Um, that, was a, that was a very left-field one. We've got a right-field one here, which uh, has come in. Uh, does open banking bring op opportunity for fintechs to marginalise the traditional financial services players? Suresh. I think there's so much fire, like, fighting talk within our sector, which is kind of like, we're going to do this and the banks are going to die and they're going to do that and this is going to happen to them. In reality, the banks have the customer base. The banks have the trust. And, you know, we had an earlier presentation where we were saying that people prefer to put their salary in a traditional bank and then use some of these fintechs to access those funds. And the reality is that I don't see it being marginalised. I, I see it working in collaboration. And the one thing, the one trend that I've seen recently is that where the banks have been quite arrogant and ignorant in, in the way that they've looked at the fintechs, they've been embracing, they've been open because they've realised this movement's got so much momentum, they can't afford to ignore it. So I don't think it will be in that way. I think actually they've got the customer base and the new entrants have got the technology and working together it's actually mutual benefit for all. Paul, do you have any thoughts on that? I think it is about collaboration. Anybody that's going to get their elbows out and try and uh, push the existing players out of the way uh, better have very deep pockets uh, because there is that trust, there is that established market and my very strong belief is that technology without a market isn't a business and 
if you're not able to take it forward, then you're really going nowhere. So, Suresh, we've got time for one more. I've got one question, and I think this question has come from somebody that hasn't listened to the podcast. Ah, okay. Because it's a repeat of something that we did in the first series. So I'll, I'll ask it again, because I think it's always relevant. What's your view on why the schemes have not been engaging in crypto programs, and when do you think their attitude will change? Well, I've answered that on a podcast. Let's see what Paul says. <laughs> Go to podcast one. I should ask, are any of your scheme members of Endercom? Visa, MasterCard? Yes. They are. Okay. So, yes. Be careful. <laughs> I, th I think this is relatively straightforward. The existing players are operating in a highly, regulatory, uh, highly regulated environment. They've got a lot to lose, and it's very difficult for them to move into that uncharted territory. They have to demonstrate to shareholders, to regulators, that they are playing it absolutely as conservatively as they possibly can. And that's one of the big challenges that they have in introducing new technologies. It's partly technology itself in that they've got old legacy platforms, and it's partly they've got an existing customer base that is used to them doing things the way they've always done them, and a regulator who's used to regulating them in an existing space. So it's a real challenge for them. The best thing that they could do would be to spin off a business that the regulator would be quite happy to regulate them uh, in and have that run as a separate business to provide all the reassurances before they then weave it into their core business. Suresh, look up there. Oh my God. Can you, the hoist is coming down for Paul. <laughs> helicopter <laughs> is dropping through the roof of, the, of this Alice in Wonderland room. Um, bye bye, Paul. <laughs> oh well, we better wrap this up. Thank you, guys. Thank you.